Welcome back to Should I Fly? This is our third episode in our effort to understand the changes occurring in the passenger aviation industry in the wake of the pandemic. What happened in 2020 was unprecedented. Some changes relate to the constant search for profitability by airlines, aircraft manufacturers and airports. Others are triggered by the exploits of entrepreneurs and investors. My name is Patrick Reimler, and together with my IMD colleague, Dr. Jim Polkrano, we'll reflect on airports in this episode. What are they? And should they continue to exist or even expand? Patrick, I'm sure you remember that in my dream at the beginning of the first episode, I entered Geneva Airport and proceeded to the gate without seeing the complexity of everything that was happening around me that would eventually allow me to get to San Francisco. And in creating that episode, I asked you, Patrick, what is an airport? You know what my conclusion is? Rather than thinking of an airport as a runway and a set of buildings, I see it as a magical portal. Yes, airports are portals to other worlds. You walk into a building and enter a metal tube at one end, and sometime later, you arrive in another city, country, or even continent. To me, that is magic. We asked Willie Walsh, former CEO of British Airways and now head of IATA, what an airport was to him. That's a fantastic question. And it's funny, nobody has ever asked me that question before. So an, an airport actually is nothing without an airline. It's an opportunity for the region the airport is located in, be that a town, a city, a state, uh, to generate economic value. But it can only do that if it can attract airlines to operate there. And, and it's that combination of airport and airline that attracts customers you don't wake up one day and say, do you know what, let's drive out to the airport and do our shopping or let's drive out to the airport. You drive out there because you're leaving from the airport to go somewhere. Uh, you're collecting somebody who has arrived at the airport. Uh, or in some cases, you know, you do have some people who like to, to look at airplanes. But, you know, you're not going to go to an airport unless there is uh, aviation activity. As a child, it was a place of excitement. But later in life, it became a place of work. But nonetheless, it's still quite an exciting place to be. I never tired of it all the years that I worked from Heathrow Airport. It's life, completely life. You have people that are waiting, that maybe got hours sitting around. There's food, there's drink. And then there is business people in a hurry. There's families waiting, as I said, people with balloons and flowers and banners and you know it's excitement and sorrow as well so I, I think it, it is life really. That was Captain PJ Alsop, a 32-year veteran long-haul pilot with British Airways preceded by Steve who spent 35 years with BA as in-charge crew member what I used to refer to as the chief steward. These are different perspectives on what an airport is but from the point of view of those who work in planes, which are their favorites? Kai Tak, the old airport at Hong Kong, which was just absolutely thrilling. And I would always, if I could, beg a seat on the flight deck for landing. It was just exhilarating every time. Now, if you ask me that 
a year, well, more than a year ago now, when I used to fly the 747, it probably would have been Cape Town. Flying in and out of Cape Town, being able to see Table Mountain, being able to see the coast, being so far away from home, that used to be my favourite airport. But now, I'd say my favourite at the moment is Barbados, because after the 747s went during COVID times, they were retired early, I had to retrain onto the 777, so I now fly a 777. And the first flight I did out of the simulator, I went down to Barbados and just being somewhere different, turquoise seas, white beaches, palm trees, seeing this lovely single runway on the island, it's at the south of the island. I was so happy to be back at work. So I'd say at the moment, that's my favorite airport. Whether you think of an airport as an exciting portal to other worlds or simply as life in a nutshell, you could be surprised by how many there are. According to the Airports Council International World Airport Traffic Report, there are currently more than 17 and a half thousand commercial airports in the world. If we count all airports, aerodromes and airfields, both civilian and military, Throughout the world, the figure rises to almost 42,000. I never imagined there were so many airports. But when you think about it, and think about how important airports are to cities and regions, this makes sense. But we've also seen and talked about the fact that airports are pretty complex places. What is the role of the person who runs an airport? I spoke with Andre Schneider, the CEO of Geneva Airport, and he sees himself as the conductor of an orchestra, keeping all the parts moving safely and efficiently. Geneva Airport itself represents 1,000 employees. If you make a larger analysis, which we've done, we're actually uh, generating overall over 33,000 employees as a CEO of the airport. I'm here to make sure that all instruments get together the right way, but also to say here, I want to have it a little bit quicker, here I want to have it a little bit louder, I want to hear more that and that. Though an airport is a physical asset of buildings, runways and equipment, it is constantly moving and pushing for operational efficiency. Typically an airline wants to have a turnaround time of maximum 45 minutes. That means 45 minutes to unload the passengers, unload the baggage, refuel, reload the packages, reload the passengers, and actually at the same time make sure that everything is fine. And if it's in the summer, cool the plane. So if you get into the plane, it's not terribly hot. Or in the winter, keep it heating, plus putting electricity on it. So there's quite a lot of things happening. An airport is also a money generator, helping to drive the local economy. In 2019, Geneva Airport had revenue of almost 500 million Swiss francs, which is just over $500 million. Founded in 1920, this mid-sized airport acts mainly as a feeder to Zurich, Frankfurt, Paris and London. This is crucially important to the western part of Switzerland and neighboring France. Dr. Blaise Mathy is Director General of the FER, an organization representing companies in the region. Geneva Airport has played a key role for Geneva. It's one of the oldest airports in Europe. We have 140 destinations from Geneva. Not that many in Europe can do that, you know? And when I'm talking to multinational companies or to diplomats, the fact is that they're always surprised to realize that they can go almost anywhere from Geneva. 
And that's really an asset for Geneva. That's an asset for the companies. That's an asset for the diplomatic world. So it's not only the airport, it's the location, it's the facility, and what it offers to people in terms of, of meeting and of traveling from one place to another. We have 3,000 multinational companies of all sizes around Lake Geneva. This is the hugest concentration of multinational companies in the world. And you have 350 international and non-governmental organizations that are established on the shores of Lake Geneva. So the diplomatic world is also very important. And this diplomatic world recently grew. An airport with frequent, reliable connections can create value in the region around it. For example, back in the early 2000s, EasyJet's frequent, low-cost flights to the south of Spain suddenly made it easy for middle-class Brits to have a holiday there or even retire there, impacting real estate prices and tourism employment. I wonder what EasyJet's recent opening of a new base in Faro, Portugal, will do for property prices and jobs there. Those are important effects. I doubt people flying in and out of an airport understood its role, though they probably have some sense of the impact the pandemic played. The Geneva airport fulfills multiple roles, and some are more financial or more job-oriented, and some are more, I would say, functionally oriented. Geneva would not have an international Geneva without an airport, because many companies, especially in our region, are either export or import-oriented. 2020 has brought us a huge reduction in revenues, because 95% of our revenues are one way or the other related to passenger numbers. Now, we had a drop of 67% of the passengers, which really induced almost the same drop of revenues. And that means, just to put it into figures, we dropped from 490 million Swiss francs of revenue to around 200 million. In 2019, Atlanta, the world's busiest airport, had 110 million passengers. Beijing, 100 million. Los Angeles, 88. Dubai, 86. Tokyo's Haneda Airport had 85 million passengers, Chicago O'Hare, about the same, and London Heathrow, 81 million passengers in 2019. Your local airport may look quite different, more like our local one in Geneva. Even at Geneva Airport, with the single runway, there is a landing once every 90 seconds between 6 a.m. and midnight. Heathrow, with two runways, there is a plane taking off every 45 seconds. And at Chicago's O'Hara Airport, with seven runways, every 30 to 40 seconds, a plane takes off. A plane landing at an airport every 30, 45, or 90 seconds is amazing, but also a bit scary. But as a traveler, I don't think about that number, do I? The airport seems like a very efficient place to me. What's going on behind the scenes? It's like an ant hill, but some ants are people and some ants are machines, cars and stuff. It's constantly moving. When you come as a passenger, you, you give up your baggage, but you don't see what happens to your baggage. It goes through the whole sorting mechanism and there are people loading it on carts, bringing it to the plane, loading it to the planes, all the operations around the plane when it arrives. And naturally, on the other side, we have all the, the shops and restaurants which have naturally also their back offices, if I might say so, between coats, either kitchens or storage. And this is then a little bit more complex because it's in the secured area. 
and typically also outside of customs area. So that brings also a lot of complexity. So it's constant move. And we have actually a special entry point for crews and employees. So we don't go where the passengers go. Even if we understand the economic value of an airport to a region and marvel at its efficiency, not everyone sees airports as a good thing. Recently, the French government passed a law banning short flights between certain close cities that have regular train travel, and they banned the construction of new airports. Based on this, what if the Swiss government were to close Geneva Airport, or if major airlines like EasyJet and Swiss left it? Here's Dr. Blaise Maté again. It would be a disaster for Geneva, for its economy, if we were to close this airport. We're really living of a catchment area which goes quite far into France, all the way to the Swiss-German area and into Italy. So if you take that one, we believe this demand will not go away. So if a company will go away, yes, we will have a drop because they will not be immediately jumping up alternative solutions. But we believe as there is a demand, there will be a company who wants to serve it. Besides size, there are differences between airports. Basically, there are two models. The first are hubs, such as Chicago O'Hare, New York's JFK, Heathrow, or Singapore's Changi Airport. That bring in passengers from smaller cities, and then they fly onwards to their final destination. I, I hope typically provides global connectivity. I'll give you an example of Heathrow. Heathrow is probably one of the major global hubs that provides UK connectivity to the world. If I go to Dublin, Dublin is connected to the US. It has very little connectivity to the rest of the world other than within Europe. And for global connectivity, where you have a very large city, so London, for example, population of 10 million, even London cannot support all of the direct air services that are provided from Heathrow. For British Airways, between 30 and 40% of the customers that fly on their long-haul network are connecting from other airports. And without that 30 to 40%, many of these long-haul destinations would not be economically viable. So what a hub airport gives you is connectivity that you cannot get on a point-to-point basis because there isn't sufficient, what we call O&D, origin and destination traffic uh, available to support it. The second model for airports are the point-to-point airports, where passengers simply fly from city X to city Y, their final destination, like say from Geneva to Marrakesh. The differences with the hub and spoke airports are quite important. Basically, it boils down to the number of destinations available and the length of time a passenger is willing to travel in total. There is also a question of which one impacts the environment most negatively, which was still unclear to us. For example, the Nanjing University of Aeronautics and Astronautics looked at air travel in China, concluding that the hub and spoke network is associated with poor environmental impact and environmental external cost because of the different network characteristics and the scale of the fleets. On the other hand, on July 28th, the Financial Times wrote, can the world afford the convenience of allowing direct flights to multiply unchecked when aviation emissions are expected to increase by up to four times 2015 levels by 2050? According to the FT and Heathrow Airport, 
28 routes are required to link eight cities under a point-to-point -point model, whereas a hub-and-spoke system needs just eight to connect those same cities. Andre Schneider makes another argument. His point is that it is the attractiveness of the region around an airport and the size of the catchment area that is important to airlines. Andre, what differentiates Geneva from big hub and spokes airports like Chicago or London Heathrow? Very simple one, they are hub airports. This is a ball flying in and flying somewhere else. So there is a vast part of their passengers which are not coming to London or to the region. That means their dependency is on the attractiveness of the airline offering the hub service. We are a point-to-point -point airport. So we're not a hub airport. Hub airport is you bring someone into a hub to take a plane to go further. For a point-to-point -point airport, it's actually our catchment area. That's the kind of public I can draw to take a plane here. And it's the destination attractivity of the area. So the major difference for us is we will build for our region, because that's our customer, for the region's needs. Whereas a hub airport, he will build for the needs of the hub airlines. Airports are always in clinch with the airlines about who owns actually the passengers. It's clear in a hub airport, it's very much the airlines. In a point-to-point -point airport, that's much more debatable. A clear differentiation is who the customer is and how an airport makes its money. Simplifying a bit, the business model differ in that hub airports serve the airlines and at hub airports, the airlines own the passengers. Point-to-point -point airports serve the region and its inhabitants. The pressure on those who run airports is huge, whether that be environmental, speed, safety, comfort, or capacity. The Boston Consulting Group, BCG, together with the Swiss American Chamber of Commerce, published a report on the Swiss aviation ecosystem in 2018. As excellent as the connections are from Switzerland to the rest of the world, they said, the mounting demand for air transport combined with the looming capacity shortage in Switzerland's national airports have created an urgent need for action. Operating improvements are required immediately in order to sustain functionality. These include investments in the infrastructure at all airports, as well as potential relocation of some general aviation from national airports to regional and other airports. So the Swiss American Chamber of Commerce is urging Switzerland and its airports to create more and better capacity, while our airport CEOs also worry about what they can do for the environment. Our concentration is on reducing CO2. We have programs to actually reduce CO2 within the airport. For the last two years, we actually have already compensated all our emissions. And we have a plan how in the mid-30s or a little bit later, we will actually be net zero. Andre, could you imagine a future where you might say, OK, I'll give my next landing slot to the airline that's flying with the most efficient aircraft, the newest aircraft, because it has lower emissions. We have started that already for flights after uh, 10 o'clock in the evening, where you cannot take off anymore if you don't have the lowest noise aircraft. My fundamental belief is that infrastructures like airports, we have not only a role to make sure that our own operations are as environment adapted as possible, but we also have to work to create incentives and also disincentives to actually 
force or push our users, be it passengers in our case or airlines, to actually adopt more environment-friendly behaviors. Again, I'm not saying it's going to be easier. And it's probably also going to include some CO2 capture solutions. Because just a stupid example, we have our own fire brigade. The World Organization for Civil Aviation imposes a maximum time to get to the end of the runway with the cars. And that means I have to have a fire brigade cars with a lot of water with over 3,000 horsepowers. Because they run like an F1 car. Huh? And I have to admit, we don't think in 2050 you will have an easy solution electrically. And uh, to put in a fire brigade car uh, hydrogen, highly compressed, might not be the best idea either. So we all know that we will probably have, beside our installations, CO2 capture installations. But that's normal and that's foreseen. The need for net zero and increased capacity obviously has repercussions for Andre Schneider and Geneva Airport. Andre and the owners of the airport invested $250 million in 2020, during the pandemic even. Which brings up the question, who owns Geneva Airport? The canton of Geneva is the owner of the airport, but they're actually running the airport on a federal concession Fundamentally, everything which is related to aviation is under the realm of the Confederation, the Swiss state. We are organized like a company, but we're still like a department. So that means we do have an interesting relationship with our owner, because at the end of the day, being a canton, he might have conflicting interests with the Confederation. We asked Willie Walsh if airports and airlines were well aligned. Airport regulation has been soft towards the airport. And what you have is a, an environment where, because the structure typically centers around a, a regulated asset base from which airports are in effect remunerated. So the incentive is for the airport to spend as much money as possible. So long as they have a return that is in excess of their average cost of capital, then the incentive is spend more money because they can fund that at a significant reduction to the reward that they're going to get. So in fact, the more money they spend, the more money they're, they're going to make. And that's a perverse incentive because for an airline, the incentive is to try and be as efficient as possible because clearly we're operating in a what, what I describe as a brutally competitive environment. Okay, simplifying and stereotyping as business school professors do, airports are incentivized to build, and airlines are incentivized to be profitable. Both want to grow. Airports are amazing places, small platforms that in a sense enable life, and they are portals that allow us to get from here to anywhere. They are optimized for aviation as it is. What about flexibility and adaptability of airports? Today they are built to provide kerosene quickly and serve existing aircraft types. What about adding capabilities to help future planes with hydrogen refueling, exchanging or changing batteries for electric planes? Even if electric planes are technically feasible and desirable, they can't exist without airports having the equipment to charge them quickly. What good is it if Geneva can charge your electric propulsion plane, but Berlin can't? In the short term, will airports be able to adapt to the European SAF requirement? As you might remember from our previous episode, by 2025, airports in Europe will need to have 2% of the fuel supply as sustainable aviation fuel. 
and 20% by 2035, requiring a big change in their supply chain. We asked Julian Cook, the recent founder of Flybondi in Argentina and previously Flybabu, which flew out of Geneva, what he thought airports could do. If you look at big airports, they often hire these high-profile architects, spend billions of dollars to do these airports. Do you really need that spend? And at the end of the day, the passenger and the airlines are, are, have to pay for it. And whereas, you know, low-cost airlines have demonstrated all you need is a shed and, and you know, a big uh, hangar and get people in and out. Look at what's happening at Heathrow now. They're trying to increase the landing fees, to recuperate, obviously, the losses of COVID. And so they're pushing for higher fees, higher taxes. They've introduced now for any car dropping off somebody at the airport, you have to pay five pounds to the airport. All that is because they've got massive costs. What then is Julian's suggestion to airports, both as an airline owner and investor? If only airport uh, operators had more of a low-cost mindset, I think it would be fantastic because I don't think, you know, when I look at airports and the way they are managed, I wouldn't say it's the opposite to low-cost airlines, but it's not far off. I mean, a lot of them are government power, government entities. I don't think efficiency is at the top of mind, basically. And, and you look at the money they spend on different things, it's just mind-blowing. Generally speaking, I think airports could be much more cost-conscious and lower their, their cost. I think that's the main thing I would say about airports instead of seeing airports as trophy buildings or whatever, where you just spend massive amounts of money to, to build them. With lockdowns during the pandemic, some airports have experimented to stay afloat. Connector Changi is uniquely designed to support safe business exchanges between international travelers and Singapore residents. You may have seen that Changi Airport in Singapore created Connect at Changi, a facility where people could fly into the airport and meet with locals or others who have similarly flown in, but in a completely safe environment. Room bubbles with airtight glass, sanitizing facilities for documents and special ventilation systems with an attached hotel. The meeting rooms can hold four to 22 people. Indeed, I heard about this, and I even wondered if we should hold one of our IMD executive programs there. To me, what we saw at Changi, this is a sign of an airport with a commercial mindset. I used to deal with the Dublin Airport Authority. That word is incredible, authority, and it goes back in history because they were authorities. They told you what to do. They told you how to operate. In many cases, they were state-owned. So the relationship was you know, one of authority to the, the poor airline who had to deal with authority. So it was never a commercial relationship, or rarely a commercial relationship. And I, I think that historical bias still exists in, in, in many cases. Where I find airports work best is where you have airports that are commercially motivated to genuinely face competition and have a, an incentive to attract business to their airport. If you get an airport and an airline working together or an airport and airlines working together, then it is a powerful combination. If you get an airport that believes it has and can exercise monopolistic power, then the relationship can be very strained because the motivation is very different. Airports can only be as good as their management, their investments, and what the authorities allow. 
More competition stimulates airports to compete for the airline's business and to make themselves attractive to their region. Hopefully, that desire to improve applies to environmental impact as well. Or should we simply reduce the number of airports? Looking again at the new rules in France, curtailing short-distance flights and not allowing new airports to be built, might that also not make it more difficult for some people to fly? Does it matter if more people find it less convenient to fly? Today, it seems that many people fly. Think of mass tourism and your brother's stag night in Prague. Yet globally, it is actually only a small part of the population that avails itself of airports, facilities and services. Do we want to reduce global CO2 emissions by making it harder for all but a select few to fly? Or do we want to make flying become more equitable? Let's look at who flies. A report by the UK Climate Action Group, Progress, found that in the US, 12% of people took 66% of all flights, while in France, 2% of people took half of the flights. In China, 5% of households took 40% of flights. And in India, just 1% of households took 45% of all flights. The Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Lausanne, the EPFL, looked into this question. Professor Talman, a professor at the EPFL, commented. The consultancy Sotomo has analyzed the 2015 National Mobility Census and they found that 5% of frequent flyers account for about a third of all CO2 emissions from aviation. A global study reported by The Guardian in November 2020 found that frequent flying, quote-unquote, super emitters, who represent just 1% of the world's population, caused half of aviation's carbon emissions in 2018. In addition, almost 90% of the world's population did not fly at all that year. In that report, Friends of the Earth UK said that they don't want to penalize hardworking families that perhaps travel abroad once a year for a holiday. Mike Childs, the organization's head of science, policy and research, cited a 2014 survey by the UK Department of Transport, which revealed that 15% of the UK's population took 70% of all flights. Charles added that aviation is a luxury, and we need to share that luxury fairly. If I hadn't woken from my dream in our first episode, I would have arrived at San Francisco Airport, SFO, later that afternoon. In that dream, I was pleased with myself for having purchased carbon credits to offset my flight's environmental damage. But now I'm worrying about whether I'm being elitist by flying at all that I'm part of that small portion of humanity that is responsible for the majority of aviation's environmental damage. But back to my dream. 30 minutes after touching down in San Francisco, I would have been in an Uber headed to San Francisco itself or Palo Alto. I entered a metal tube on one side of the portal and found myself sometime later on the other side of the world. Now, if that isn't magic, I don't know what is. Whether you believe airports are magical portals or simply a necessary means to get somewhere, join us in the next episode where we talk further about that magic in economy, business or first class seats and the critical actors that connect the two sides of our portal, 
the airlines. Thank you for being with us. You've been listening to Should I Fly? Written and presented by me, Jim Polcrano. And me, Patrick Reimolo. We are a production of the IB Business School in Lausanne, Switzerland, one of the world's leading providers of insights and education for executives. To find out more about the school and to read our new magazine, I by IMD, follow the links in the show notes of this episode. Thanks for listening and see you next time.